I'm going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 58. And I'm going to be focusing particularly on verses 13 and 14, dealing with the well-known words about the Sabbath. But there's many things in the context that affect the points that I want to draw to our attention today. So let us give our reverent attention to the whole chapter. Cry aloud, spare not. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you do not notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush? And to spread out sackcloth and ashes, would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out? When you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh, then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noonday. Then the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwelling. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Amen. You may be seated. 
Well, as I mentioned a few moments ago, this is a well-known text about the Sabbath day, particularly verses 13 and 14, which we're focusing on this morning. Some of you are aware I've also preached on this text in our local congregation, at least Laney, and maybe a few others not too long ago. But I want to take a different tact with the text today and speak to you either as ministers of the gospel or as potential ministers of the gospel. What do we delight in and how does this affect our preaching and our ministry, particularly on a somewhat contentious and difficult issue like the Sabbath day. Before I launch into the text proper, however, this text, I believe, reminds us of one of the central components of the Christian life, namely that the Christian life is ultimately about delight and pleasure. And what I mean is the goal of everything we do, the goal of really everything we are as Christians is what theologians have called the beatific vision. Ultimately, we want to see God as he is. We want to know God as well as he can be known. We want to see Jesus Christ in glory because when we see him, we will be made like him. And as our goals for the Christian life relate to taking pleasure in the triune God himself and taking delight in our glorious God, the Lord has graciously given us at least two major things that constantly place our lives in the right rhythm, namely the Lord's Day and the Lord's Supper. Every Lord's Day, we ought to be looking to the Day of the Lord. As the Spirit dwells in our hearts as a down payment of heaven, we ought to come to the Lord's Day living, as it were, with one foot in heaven. Likewise, every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. We're looking forward to the day when he sits with us at the table in heaven. So what I'm getting at here as we come to this text about the Sabbath is ultimately the Christian life is about what we take pleasure in, what we delight in. Is it the glory of the triune God that impels us forward that drives us onward as we live the Christian life? And does this affect very practical issues such as the one in Isaiah 58, 13, and 14, namely keeping the Sabbath day? Well, that gives me something of a positive introduction. I have a sub-introduction that's a bit more negative. Even though the Sabbath is meant to express our joy and delight in the Lord himself, I don't think it'll surprise you if I say, the Sabbath often becomes an issue of great ministerial discouragement. It seems like almost weekly, at least monthly, I either get friends in the ministry or graduates who come and say the same thing over and over again. I've been preaching on the beauties of worship. I've been preaching on the glories of God and the Sabbath as a means of delighting in God. And the attendance at evening worship hasn't changed. The prayer meeting is still relatively empty. I've been preaching on these topics and people just won't listen. 
or perhaps people listen for a time. And then as soon as temptation or persecution arises, immediately they suddenly and magically question their convictions and go back to where they were before. And what is our tendency under such ministerial discouragement? That which is meant to direct us and drive us to pleasure in God becomes a means of discouragement, if not despair. And what I want to focus on today is not just the issue of what does the text say about Sabbath keeping, but probably more fundamentally, how do we preach the Sabbath? How do we live according to the teaching of the text and the goal of the Christian life to take pleasure in God? And how does this affect our dealing with ministerial discouragement? In terms of the text itself, my point should be easy enough to remember. And for those who heard the sermon in the local church, they're not different. We need to keep the Sabbath holy. We need to keep the Sabbath holy. And I've changed the spelling there, meaning entirely. And we need to keep the Sabbath happily. And what I'm really getting at with all of these things is there ought to be a positive tone to our approach to the Sabbath, a proactive rather than a reactive tone. And ultimately, as ministers of the gospel, what we're really praying for is as we take pleasure in the Lord through his day, as we keep the Sabbath holy, as we keep it holy or entirely, as we keep it happily, we're praying that our delight in the Lord would be contagious. And ultimately, that's the tone that I want to set. So let's look at the parts. First, we need to keep the Sabbath holy. Now, I want to draw something from the argument of the context a little bit here, because I think the issues that the people faced in Isaiah's day are eerily similar to the ones that we face now. What is actually going on? Well, let me begin illustrating the point of, I think, what's going on in the background a little bit. Have you ever talked to a pastor, perhaps at a conference, who complains about his discouragements in the ministry in the local church, and he says something like this, I've been preaching God's law, and the people just don't like God's law. And what's the assumption? Well, this is to be expected, isn't it? Our hearts are desperate, our hearts are wicked, our hearts are bent on evil, And look what they're doing. Every time they hear the law of God, they buck back. They push against it. They just don't like the law. That's just a ministerial trial. That's just human nature. And I'm tempted to ask, and sometimes I have, have you preached the law lawfully? Have you preached the law in a way that magnifies the character of Christ as its walking transcript? as the pattern to which the Spirit is conforming us? Have you preached the law in such a way that ultimately expresses your delight in your God? Or are you as a Reformed pastor preaching the law in a way that simply expresses your frustrations that people will not outwardly conform to the practices you want to see in their lives? That takes us to the context Notice what's going on in Isaiah chapter 58. The Lord has given us great promises up to this point, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the context, but you know some of it. The suffering servant, 
who would come and remove the root of the people's problems. As the wrath of God looms over rebellious sinners, this servant takes our transgressions upon himself. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to lay on him the iniquities of us all. And far from just dying, he will see the labor of his soul. He will be satisfied. He will see its prosperity and blessing in bringing many people from many nations to himself. And this context of the new covenant of the work of Christ is really what looms large here in the background. In fact, in the next chapter, we have a Old Testament Trinitarian presentation of the gospel because the Redeemer comes to Zion to turn many away from iniquity. And as the Lord sends him, he also sends the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit takes the law, takes the word, and puts it in our mouths, in our hearts, just as it was in the mouth of the heart of the prophet, and even into the mouths and hearts of our children, even forever. These are great new covenant promises. What a contrast we see to the state of the people in the beginning of Isaiah 58. Now, I'm not going to go through all the context, but notice what they're doing. They're complaining to God. Why are they complaining to God? We have fasted. And you have not noticed. You've ignored us. We have taken pleasure in your ways. We delight to learn what you would require of us. And you don't see. Now, the Lord, of course, points out the problems with their fasting in and of itself. But what I want to do is rather than go through the details of the text, try to cut to the heart of the matter. Their religious service became self-centered rather than God-centered. Now, keep in mind, in the New King James, as I read it, reflecting the Hebrew terms behind this, delight and pleasure in verses 2 and 3 and down into verses 13 and 14 are the key terms. What were they taking pleasure in? What were they taking delight in? First and foremost, their outward observances, their outward conformity their outward practices, in this case, of fasting. And there's a reason why fasting and Sabbath are connected, and I'm I'm not going to explore that here in great depth. But keep in mind what's going on. In the name of service to God, they became selfish. And then what's the next thing that happens? When we focus on ourselves, What does this look like in relationship to other people? We put ourselves first and we put them last. We take advantage of them. We exploit them. We abuse them. We pursue our own benefit at the expense of theirs. And we can baptize our practice of mere outward conformity, regardless of how we're treating others, by saying that these are the ordinances of God. Now, when the Lord takes us to the Sabbath and calls us to keep the Sabbath holy in verse 13, he's not simply replacing one external set of practices with another. The real million-dollar question in this text is, in what do you delight? Do you put the Lord first, then others, and denying yourself, put yourself at the bottom and last? Or have you put yourself first? Have you become self-focused, self-centered in the name of service to the Lord? 
and you're showing the bad fruits of your bad hearts in your relationship to others, though you claim religion. So the Lord directs them not simply to another external practice, but to keep the day holy. Now, just notice this first point is keep the day holy. And I'll say something about this briefly, but notice how he begins. In verse 13, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and shall honor him. And let's stop in the middle of the sentence and and leave the thought hanging for just a moment. You notice the shift in tone. Don't do what pleases you. Do what pleases me. My day. Honor him, the holy day of the Lord. You see, the focus is now all entirely on God himself, no longer on us. But what does it mean to keep the day holy? Well, it means to set it apart to God for his worship and service, just as priests were holy in leading the worship of God in the Old Testament, just as Objects, things, places could be dedicated wholly in the last chapter of Leviticus to the worship and service of God. So this day is God's and not ours. And when we look at the day, the first thing we should see is God and not us. Are we taking delight and pleasure merely in externals, becoming angry with people when they don't conform to what we want? Even if we're right. Or are we more proactive than that, calling a day holy because we take pleasure and delight in the Lord? Which theme is going to become stronger as we're going through the text? As I read this text, the only other two places of the Old Testament this reminds me of are the burning bush where God says to Moses, take the shoes off your feet because you're standing on holy ground. Also, the army of the Lord under Joshua meeting the commander of the armies of the Lord. The commander says the same thing. Take the shoes off your feet, for you stand on holy ground. And now we come to the Sabbath, and there's the same kind of idea, isn't there? What does it mean to keep it holy? It doesn't mean to focus on yourself. It doesn't mean to do what you think is restful. It doesn't mean to find your own pleasure through a different avenue and a different venue. What it does mean is that you are in the presence of God. Do not trample underfoot what is holy. Do not mistreat it. Notice, if you turn away your foot also implies they're already doing it. They're very religious. They're ready to argue for the five points of Calvinism. They're ready to defend their Westminster Confession of Faith to the death if necessary. They are at every single service. They are participating in the public worship of the church. And yet at the same time, their hearts are with their outward practices, not with the holiness of the Lord and the holiness of his day. So I want to hasten on to the next two parts of this. But is our approach to the Sabbath proactive? Is it positive? Are we focused on the failures of God's people? Or are we focused on delighting in the holiness of God ourselves? Do we delight in his day? Do we take pleasure in his day because it is the vehicle, it is the means to get us to God himself is really what I'm getting at here. Where do they go wrong? 
they became so focused on externals, in this case, they're fasting, they lost sight of love to God and neighbor in the name of doing both. I believe one of the best ways, or best ways is the worst way to put that, um, but one of the clearest ways this shows itself in our ministries is, are we becoming angry and discouraged with the people of God as we preach on something like the Sabbath? Do we often think, for example, that if people are failing in the Sabbath, and the answer is, I need to do a 12-part series on the Sabbath, and this is really what I need to preach, this is really what I need to stress, or do we focus on the glory of our God revealed in his Son? Do we teach them to take pleasure in the Lord? Do we make the day attractive as we keep it holy ourselves, that it might be contagious to them? What I'm getting at, firstly, is as we keep the Sabbath holy, don't lose our positive focus. But we must keep the Sabbath holy. Secondly, this is my second point, meaning entirely. And what we're really getting at is this. If we're turning away our foot from defiling the Sabbath, if we're taking pleasure in God's holy day in order to take pleasure in God himself, and we are keeping the day holy, what is the outward manifestation of this fact? And really, the, the big issue that stands out is out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Where are your ways going? Where are your thoughts? Where is your speech? Where are your hearts ultimately? And notice that's what Isaiah is getting at here. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, etc., you call the day, the holy, uh, holy day of the Lord, honorable, shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Do you see the refrain? Do you see the theme? Your own, your own, your own, your own, your own. It's not about you. It's ultimately about the Lord. And we have to remember the reason why we care to keep the Sabbath holy in heart, speech, and behavior, and I'm spelling that W-H-O-L-L-Y now, holy in every part of our being, in every part of the day, in everything that we set our hands to, is because of the first point. We regard the holiness of the day, we look to our pleasure and our delight in the Lord himself, and we can hardly speak about anything else. We hardly want to think about anything else. Why would we want to do anything else other than worship the Lord? Is this the tone that we set for our own Sabbath keeping and for our teaching on the Sabbath as we do with others? Now, let me illustrate this, and, and I'm purposefully not expounding a lot of the details of, of the text and application at this point, because in some ways I'm preaching to the choir here. In other words, we're familiar with these things to a great extent. What I'm really dealing with is pastoral. What's in our hearts? How do we communicate to others as a result of what is in our hearts? Are we known or simply saying on the Sabbath day, well, don't go out to eat? It's true. Um, don't go watch the football game. Again, true, valid, good. Uh, don't go play video games with your friends if you're talking to your kids. Again, valid and true, right? Or are we communicating to our churches and to our children 
that the main reason we don't want to do those things, the main reason we don't want to go out to eat, we don't want to watch football games, we don't want to go play video games, we don't want to do anything else, is because we have so many better things to do. We delight in the Lord. We call his day holy and honorable. We take pleasure actively in the Lord because on the Lord's day, we're looking to the day of the Lord. We're looking to the return of Christ. We look forward to seeing him as he is, and we are thankful beyond measure that we have the freedom not to be occupied with our thoughts about other things, not to pursue our worldly employments and, and recreations. If we're teaching these things well, if we're pursuing them the right way, the question people are left with should be, why would I want to do any of these other things? Now, I've seen churches take this to excess in a negative direction. And basically, they will occupy people with so many activities and so many things on the Lord's day that the day itself almost becomes a burden. We almost get this impression, and I'm bordering borrowing analogy from Dr. Piper's book here, that what we're doing is we, we don't want to violate the sanctity of the day in heart, speech, and behavior. And so rather than get to the day and trample it underfoot, which Isaiah has already told us not to do, let's build fences around the day. And then let's build fences around those fences. So if people violate anything, it might be the first or the second fence, but they never really get at the thing. So let's tell people, spend an hour in your family worship in the morning. Then spend the rest of the morning doing your catechizing. Then go to a two-hour worship service. Then spend the afternoon only and always talking about things related to the sermon, to the catechism, to all these other things. Then let's have another two-hour worship service. Then let's go back and, and do more and do more and do more and do more. You understand I'm walking a fine line here. We need to be proactive with the day. We need to occupy it well. We need to, usually I have the opposite problem. I'm trying to get people to do more and, and, and fill the day proactively with good things. But I've also seen this opposite extreme, sometimes as pastors or potential pastors, do we think if we put up enough fences, then they'll ultimately have to conform and get with the program. It's the wrong way to approach the day. We should furnish people with things that help them, with Sunday schools, the two worship services, encouraging hospitality, encouraging family worship, all of these other things. But are we ultimately devolving into external conformity? Or are we really conveying the idea that we delight ourselves in the Lord? And we want these people to delight in the Lord in such a way that they don't want to talk about anything else. They don't want to do anything else. They want to be with God's people in God's presence delighting themselves in the Lord. What I'm really asking you, brothers, is do we make the Sabbath attractive? Have we reduced it to externals like the Jews did? Or are we proactive? This is convicting for those of us who are parents, I think, as well, not just with the Lord's Day, but in general. Isn't it easy with our children to focus on all the things that they've not done all the things that they're failing in, all the things that they repeatedly forget to do on a daily basis, and we forget that we want to entice them with the glory of their Savior. We want to teach them to take pleasure in their God, 
by doing their work well, let alone keeping the Sabbath well? And are these not things that challenge us and reshape us and remake us in every area of life and how we think? So we need to keep the Sabbath holy, dedicating it to God. We need to keep the Sabbath holy or entirely meaning in heart, speech, and behavior as the text outlines, but we also need to keep it happily. Now, I've already set the tone for this, I hope, as we've been going through the text. Don't just give the negatives. Don't just push in a negative direction. But is there a positive tone to how we keep the Sabbath? Well, I'm reminded here of a particular instance where a dear friend of mine was laboring in a very difficult church or church situation, at least for him. And he, in his perception, believed people were just not listening and nothing ever seemed to change, not just with the Sabbath, but with so many other things in the practices and lives of his people. And one day he got a call from his mother and his mother said, I've been listening to your sermons online and I can tell you're angry at these people. And you're using the pulpit to get back at them. And that example ties into everything that I'm trying to stress in each of these points. Is our focus simply on ourselves and our own ministerial discouragements and disappointments? Or is it ultimately on our own delight and pleasure in God? As we fervently pray that that pleasure, delight would become contagious to others and they'd come with us. Or have we become so focused on the external results of our ministry that we actually use the pulpit to lash out at our congregation? What I'm really getting at here is whether it's the Sabbath or anything else, are you preaching an order to worship first? Well, how does this last part of the text pull us in that direction, keeping the Sabbath happily? Notice the enticements the Lord gives. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, what's the Lord actually getting at? And what's he actually saying? Notice again, the people took pleasure. They took delight in their fasting and their external practices. And they complained and they cried out. We, we fast all day. We fast all the time. And the Lord just doesn't pay attention. The Lord just doesn't see. Now, what do we have in this text? We have a person who is so absorbed about with God himself that he becomes self-forgetful. Because notice what the Lord promises first. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. Notice the circle in the text or the circle the text is completing here. Why do we return to the Sabbath? Why do we delight in the Sabbath? Because we want to delight in the Lord. Because we pursue him with heart, mind, soul, and strength. We love him because he first loved us. We love him even more because he didn't spare his only begotten son for us. And now we delight in his ways. We delight in his day because we delight in him. And the first thing that God says through Isaiah is you will get all that you desire. If you delight in the Lord, I will bless you with delight in the Lord. If you use the Sabbath truly because you love the Lord of the Sabbath, then the first thing I will give you is you shall delight yourself in the Lord. Now, I appeal to your heart. I appeal to your conscience, your experience. Believer in Christ, 
what more could you desire from God himself? To use a great means of delighting in the Lord with the reward at the end of the path being you shall delight in the Lord even more. And this just reinforces the positive tone of the text, doesn't it? Turning from our external practices, turning with our hearts to the Lord, and then delighting in the day so that we might delight in the Lord. So the Lord first promises that we would delight in the Lord of the day. The second thing he promises is protection. You shall ride, I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. There's a similar set of terms given in the, in the song of Habakkuk at the end of Habakkuk's, uh, I almost say his gospel, but it is like that, isn't it? At the end of Habakkuk's book, as he sings praises to God, the very circumstances he faces and the circumstances these people faced on the cusp of exile, it's actually quite similar. Lord, things seem to be going badly. It seems that your church is marginalized that no one listens to your people, that your people are defamed, that they have been wicked and they've seemed to have gotten away with it. And now when you intervene and you do something uh, about their wickedness, it seems that those who punish them are more wicked than they were in the first place. What are you doing, O Lord? And of course, the Lord calls Habakkuk to wait, to watch. The just shall live by his faith to trust the Lord's character, even when we don't understand the Lord's ways. And as Habakkuk reflects on the character of God, and this relates to this focus on the Sabbath here, his perspective changes. Though I lose everything, though the fig tree may not blossom, though, though there be no fruit in the vine, though the, there be no herd in the stall, etc., I will joy in the God of my salvation. I shall ride on the high hills of the earth. He shall make my feet like deer fe deer's feet. And what is he saying? God is with me. God protects me. God is my blessing. God is my portion. That is enough. And so what is the Lord saying here? Worship changes your perspective. As you keep the day holy, as you keep the day holy, and as you keep the day happily, what happens? We rest in the Lord, who is our delight, and we trust in his presence and protection. And our perspective changes. And I'll feed you with the heritage of Jacob. Your father really means you will enjoy all the fruits and benefits and blessings of my covenant with my people. Unless we miss everything the Lord says, he adds this emphatic conclusion. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, I won't fail to do it. I'll do everything that I've said and more than you can ask or think. So what do we do with this and where do we end? Well, how do we approach the Sabbath? Is our ultimate goal in the Christian life and our ultimate goal in Christian ministry to take pleasure and delight in the Lord? Can we preach as an act of worship, even if it appears people aren't listening or changing? And by the way, as we're dealing with issues like the Sabbath, don't underestimate the hold that worldliness and ungodliness takes in the hearts and minds of God's people, including our own. Christian living and sanctification is a long and painful process of mental and spiritual reconditioning. 
if we've constantly been thinking the wrong things about the, what the relationship between a husband and a wife looks like, it's going to take a lot of good peer pressure to overturn it. A lot of time of reconditioning our thoughts, our hearts, our patterns, our behavior before the entirety of life goes with it. Is the Sabbath any different? Should we expect in a culture that no longer protects the Sabbath by law and our people are tempted to treat it like any other day, to go to work, to go to football games, to go out with their friends, that suddenly the first sermon you preach on the Sabbath, the Spirit zaps them and everything's different. Sometimes it happens. But those of us who are pastors in here know most of the time it doesn't. Are we willing to persevere in keeping the day holy because we delight in the Lord? Are we willing to pe- persevere in keeping the whole day and keeping the day holy in our heart speeches and behavior because we are pursuing the Lord through the day? Are we willing to persevere in maintaining a positive tone, laying hold of great promises like these, the chief of which is delighting ourselves in the Lord himself? And are we willing to continue to pray that this delight in the Lord and in his day would spread to God's people? This might be anticlimactic to end with this illustration, but in one church in which I pastored, I preached on the Sabbath, I taught on the Sabbath, I hope I showed people some measure how to delight in the Sabbath, Uh, but it seemed very few people listened at all. But I continued to pray for the people and pray that they would delight in the Lord of the day and then delight in the Lord's day as a result and use it as a means. And it was really two pastors later that suddenly everything clicked. And now they love the Lord's day. They begged for evening worship. They wanted things to match what we're seeing in the text because the slow process of sanctification and the Spirit's work set in. Don't use the Lord's day as a means of expressing ministerial bitterness. Keep your eyes on the Lord and delight in the Lord's day because you delight in the Lord of the day as we keep the Sabbath holy, holy, and happily. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for blessing us with your word. May it grip our hearts. May you raise up our eyes to heaven as we look for you to fulfill your promises. We thank you for the earnest of the spirit. And we ask that you would bless us this very day to set our mind on things above where Christ is seated and bless us to teach and to preach to your people well, exalting your glory before them. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.